The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, sell your house some other time. Right now, it's time for .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 450 with guest Nicholas Bloomhart, recorded live Thursday, May 27, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering .NET Nuke video training with Chris Hammond from Engage Software. On DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Grape City Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who was wrongly accused of putting Xlax in a Linux Zealot's hot chocolate... Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're here for your .NET listening pleasure. It's .NET Rocks, of course. Richard is up to his ears in home renovations, and I've got music coming out of my you-know-what's-its down here in the studio. I'm looking forward. I know what your next song is going to be, dude, and I'm really looking forward to it coming out. I'm excited. Actually, you haven't heard the latest. Oh, uh, no. No, you haven't. No, we're working on it right now. Jay's here, actually. Excellent. We just had to uh, stop to do the show, but it's no big deal. And I'm working on my new phone system. We're moved into the renovated house, but there's all the little details. So, tell. Do we talk about your door? Do we talk about your doorbell on yeah, the show? I think we did last we, yeah. last show. I mentioned the MP3 that's right. doorbell, that's right. so that's good. The phone systems. I did. I went with Microsoft Response Point. Huh. got a smoking deal on it. Six handsets, and I can add more. But it's all voice over IP in the house, and you know the email and transfer, and I can have an automated attendant. So now, when you phone my home, it'll go. Welcome to the Campbell uh, household. <laughs> Who would you like to talk to? And you say the name, and it switches you to the right phone. So is that what they use at Microsoft? I don't think so. No. <laughs> I think when you've got 90,000 employees versus my four-person plus dog house. <laughs> I know. want to talk to the dog. Ruff, ruff. <laughs> <laughs> the dog should have his own extension. Yeah. You're right. All right. Let's get into Better Know Framework. All right. We'll get started here. Uh, so I was playing out last night at... Um, and this place in Westerly that I play with this, uh, I call it a hippie cover band. Wheelhouse is the name of it. Great, great people. 
and it's Rhode Island, and you know they have a distinctive accent there. So this this woman's at the bar, and she's kind of nice. You know, she's nice looking and stuff. And I go up to get a drink at a break, and she says, "You're a wicked good guitar player." <laughs> nice guitar player. You're a good guitar player. <laughs> Uh, that's funny. Anyway, hey, you know, in Rhode Island, they spell gutters, G-U-D-D-I-Z, like I got to clean out my gutters, <laughs> put out my Stom windows, S-T-A-W-M, windows, W-I-N-D-I-Z. All right. Um, today, I'm talking about the Media Clock class in system.windows.media. Cool. Media Clock maintains a timing state for media through a media timeline. Ah, okay. You're thinking it was a clock that was going to go up in your gadget bar. <laughs> but this is all about synchronizing like audio with video, that kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So it's it's there, and that's, uh, that's what it's for. I don't see a whole lot of uh, examples, but if you click on Media Timeline... That's uh, system.windows.media.media timeline. That's um, a timeline for media content, and they do indeed have more remarks there. So media timeline is a timeline object which provides control over media timing in the same way that animation timeline objects control animations. Right. So uh, it has an associated duration and begin time properties to specify when media begins and how long it plays. So that's kind of cool, you know? Yeah, yeah. No question. You know what I'm thinking is a way to synchronize videos. And and I've thought about this. You know, what if you had – what if you wanted to have two videos playing simultaneously on two different screens but have them in sync? Because, like, maybe you got two people talking to each other. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. But instead of putting them all on one screen, you want them on two screens. So you can synchronize them that way. There you go. There's an example in there. Media timeline, media clock. Cool. Know it, love it, learn it. You got an email for us. Yes, sir, I do. And it's a technical one, so bear with me here. Uh, Hi, Carl and Richard. I've been listening to the show for quite a while now, and I have to argue about something said in show 447, and that was the database show. Okay. The problem with identity columns is that they are sequential, and since the data is stored in a B tree, they will always be allocated at the end. If a large number of items are added, then the tree will become unbalanced and SQL Silver will, I assume, even with the latest versions, lock the table and rebalance it. If you're re-indexing on a regular basis and don't have hard requirements for other processes accessing that table while it's locked, then yes, having all the data on the same page is a plus. If they're goods, they can be generated on the client and don't require a round trip when inserting header detail tables. They're also going to be randomly distributed, and any rebalancing of the tree will probably be only a minor change requiring splitting that leaf node into two. Hmm. And that email's from Ralph Tricky. And Ralph, we're going to send you a mug because we like you. And now I'm going to disagree with you. Okay. Now, he's right. In a sequential identity column, right, like normal identity columns, you end up with all the weight on, you know, trees aren't sequential. They're sort of spread out. They're all going to be loaded on one side. You're going to have splitting on one side, and it does disbalance it. But... SQL Server is smart enough now to rebuild indexes without losing the old index. It builds a new one in the meantime, takes more disk space, and then switches over to it. It's ah, very clever. That is clever. So that gets rid of that basic complaint. The bigger issue here is that when you actually go random and insert it all over the place, you hit more lock collisions. So that's the down. And then you combine that with GUIs, which are big and heavy and take longer to, to be handled in the first place, actually slows things down. So hmm. what we found in production... 
and I'm really quoting Paul Randall here, who is the guru on all this stuff, mm-hmm. is that in production, those things, the go- random GUIDs cause more trouble, which is why in 2008 they added the sequential GUID. So if mm. you need a GUID, you can still go sequential. And the sequential problem is a known problem. We still deal with issues like hotspots and so forth, but there are solutions to it. It's a more manageable solution. So, Ralph, while I get your point, I totally disagree with you. And the data seems to weigh out more on sequential is better and manageable. But don't take it personally, Ralph. Don't take it personally. It's just, you you know, just just a couple guys geeking out. That's all. Yeah, absolutely. But thanks for your email. Enjoy the mug. You can throw it against the wall if I've offended you. I'm okay with that. Richard, we're going to be at DevTeach in Vancouver, your part of the world here, in a couple of weeks. Yes, and we're going to be doing the Studio 2010 beta uh, install party on Wednesday night at 6 o'clock. So be there, be square. DevTeach is a great conference. Make sure you get up there and see us. Yeah, we'll have a great time. Yeah, we'll be there. All kinds of great speakers are going to be there. Tim Huckabee, in fact, we just talked about uh, that database show. That was with uh, Adam Mechanic. Mm-hmm. He'll be there. Peter DeBetta will be there. Ted Neurid will be there. Ted Neurid will be there. Really great lineup of speakers in a really small show. June in Vancouver is beautiful. Uh, the hotel is awesome. We're going to have a great time. So highly recommend if you're ever consider going to Vancouver, now's the time. DevTeach.com. Come out in June. Our guest today is Nicholas Bloomhart. He's a program manager on the .NET framework. Prior to joining Microsoft, he worked as a developer, consultant, and architect and founded the Autofact Project. Uh, Nicholas spends a lot of time doing what he loves best, learning how to write great software and passing that knowledge on to others. You can find more about Nicholas online via his blog, uh, blogs.mstn.com slash nbloomhart. That's with a D at the end. N-B-L-U-M-H-A-R-D-T. Twitter at Bloomhart or via the Managed Extensibility Framework site, codeplex.com slash M-E-F. Welcome to the show, Nicholas. Thanks very much, Cole. So, um, Autofac. This is, uh, this is the Autofac project. I have never heard of it. What is it? Yep, Autofac is a dependency injection framework for .NET. Um, it's designed to be very lightweight. It uh, fits with the C-sharp 3 language very closely. Um, it's a piece of architectural software that really lets you um, break an application into, into larger components that you can then um, bring together at runtime in a really loosely coupled way. Is this a Microsoft venture, or is it just something that you started yourself? No, my um, Autofax is an open-source project. Um, I've been contributing to it since I founded it probably a year and a half ago. Um, I've only I joined uh, Microsoft late last year to work on the Managed Extensibility Framework, which is also a component-related technology, but something that's coming up in .NET 4. But the, the two are definitely distinct. Well, there's got to um, be like five or six other... IOC containers out there. What's um, Castle, Windsor, and Spring yeah, Mountain yeah. Windsor Mountain. would be the most obviously. Windsor would be the most familiar. Um, Unity. What's, di- what's different about yours? Well, I originally did use Windsor actually, and I've used it even quite recently. It's a a great little library, I guess. Um, there are a few aspects to it that I originally wasn't satisfied with, and set off on my own path to try and learn the space and and see whether I could come up with something with uh, a different sort of set of Rules and restrictions, um, probably more of a taste thing, but Autofax sort of um, tackled the whole coupling um, sort of um, composition problem using Lambda expressions in C-sharp for a start instead of reflection. Um, oh, cool. 
yeah, it was kind of a way of um of getting a little bit less magic in the um into the whole equation. But yeah, um and on top of that it has a bit of a novel lifetime model which which is kind of um interesting if you're building systems that do uh, more transactional kind of processing. So we're managing database connections and sessions and handles and things. You know, AutoFact's got a few extra little features that sort of lets you um, leave a bit of that resource management responsibility to the container. And you can create components with expressions? What's that all about? Um, well, a component, loosely speaking, is just a, a class that has um, explicit dependencies only. So while you can, a class is a fairly arbitrary kind of thing, um, a component actually depends on you having um, all of your environmental dependencies expressed as constructor parameters or or properties so that the the class can be uh, can have its behavior completely sort of defined from the outside right um, so IOC containers actually um, allow you to register components and then at runtime the IOC container will provide the dependencies to the constructor or the properties um, and that's sort of called the activation process for a component. Yeah, so um, so AutoFAC actually lets you set up the activation process um, through an expression. So you write a, a little snippet of C-sharp that tells you how to get your constructor parameters from the container and pop them into the, the parameter list for the constructor or or set them through a property setter. And um, Generally, um, IOC containers like Windsor um, originally did that through reflection by matching on the types um, through a feature called auto wiring, which is kind of a, a very simplified and lazy way of of getting the dependencies from the container into the constructors or properties. And I'm looking at the the list of features here, and um, one of the ones that you like to highlight is generated factories. Ah, um, well, when you're building applications with an IOC container, you've you've got a few higher level kind of things that you have to deal with. Um, there's a kind of a principle that IOC container users or component authors follow, which is that you generally try not to access the container after the application's been configured. Um, one of the ideas of IOC is everything's loosely coupled and can be kind of transported between contexts. So if you write a component that has to, say, um, create controllers to handle web requests or create new documents in response to user actions, um, the the typical approach has been to actually um, put a static uh, variable with the container in it somewhere in your system, and then have have the component call into that, and that kind of breaks a few of the um, a few of the sort of um, loose coupling principles that IOC has. So, Autofac added a, um, a novel sort of approach, which is to allow the container to generate these delegates that will allow you to actually. Um, create new instances of components on the fly, and those delegates can actually get injected as constructor uh, parameters or properties um, into your component classes, so you break that coupling a bit more. And so suddenly this name makes sense to me. It's an automated factory of objects. Yeah, well, AutoFact's really like a a very configurable sort of um, object instantiation pipeline. It lets you define um, what the parameters to the constructor are. It lets you define what actions we performed on the object after it's been created. Um, and it even lets you get into sort of the disposal aspects as well. So it really kind of um, 
it, it manages the lifetime of objects. And by getting all of that responsibility out of your application code, you um, you simplify applications a surprising amount. Because one of the things you don't realize before you start using um, IOC is that a, a really large proportion of your application code is concerned with um, creating up sort of these dependent graphs of objects. And if you really want to write clean code, you don't want to put... Um, or decoupled code, you don't want to put all of your your services into these static variables or singletons. Or um, we've all sort of moved on from that anti-pattern. Um, so if you're writing a, a decoupled system, generally you'll find there's some kind of configuration object that's creating a bunch of uh, service layer kind of entities and then passing those all down, you know, to each other to try and get a graph configured. And you don't really see that code until you eliminate it by by taking an IOC container and um, using its features to do the same thing. And it's actually quite surprising, um, the reduction in, in verbosity that you get. Um, one, of, one of the funny things about IOC containers is that you generally, um, well, I at least looked at, looked at um, Windsor for quite a long time after hearing about it um, early in its early days. And um, I spent probably a year looking at um, examples and sort sample code, and, you know, describing what these IOC container things were, and um, I just didn't get it. I thought, why would I go to all this hassle with um, by adding all of this configuration or you know, in, introducing this new technology just to construct objects, and I can do that with new. Um, but once you actually dig in and start to, to build real sizable applications, you find that just at the point where... Um, sort of classical designs start to become frustrating and hard to change, um, the, the sort of um, the support that the IOC container gives you to actually concentrate on one piece of your application at a time really kicks in and, um, and applications start to get easier to, to extend and, um, and less complex to work on. And to test, too. Testing is a big part of it, too. Being able to swap in mocks uh, without you know, without major surgery is, is a really huge feature. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think testing is one of the side effects more than, more than the goal, um, as, at least as far as IOC is concerned. I think it's, it's strange because um, the reason that you would use an IOC container is to eliminate um, global state. So if I actually have um, a controller that has a dependency on a repository, um, then providing the repository and the constructor of the controller, um, as you would with an IOC container, as opposed to having some global um, repository variable, makes the, the controller and the repository um, more flexibly coupled so you, can, um, so you can obviously mock them, but it also makes the whole system more understandable because when you call a method on the controller, you don't have to wonder about um, what other pieces of the system will be affected because you've already you've already provided all of the dependencies to the controller explicitly through its constructor or through through properties. So yeah. you kind of get two you get two sort of side effects: um, the the loose coupling and the, the testability together. Hey Nicholas, I'd like to get back to this idea of component-oriented programming for a bit because uh, we sort of talked about that a little bit and I know a lot of .NET developers use components and they sort of have an idea what components are but but you really designed you really designed uh, Autofac around this idea of component-oriented programming that uh, maybe we should talk about that a little bit more. 
Yeah, com- component-oriented programming has been around for a really long time. Um, I didn't actually realize quite uh, how how deep its um, its history goes. I think since since the very early days of object orientation, we've been trying to build um, more loosely coupled software and software that's easier to change. And yeah, you know, this idea of components um, sprang up quite a long time ago. And I think I mentioned earlier that the idea of a component is that um, it doesn't have any implicit dependencies on on the environment. So a component is purely defined by its contract. It's got the dependencies that it requires in order to do, it, to do its job, and then it's got um, the services that it provides once it's been initialized. And um, I guess the the thing that's held component technology back, in, in my very humble opinion, um, is that when you're looking at an individual component, that's a, that's quite a simple concept. I mean, provide the dependencies to the component, use the services of the component. But once you get into um, building larger systems, you'll find that if component A uses component B and component B uses component C, then component A has to initialize component B with component C. Um, and that sort of um, continues down the chain. So if, if C uses D, then A is going to have to provide B with both C and D, and then B is going to have to provide C and so on. Um, and so I think um, the usability of component technology like uh, like that has has been held back. And IOC containers are really like the, the next um, enabler that will let component programming go from being um, you know, an, an ideal to something that we really do every day. And that's, that's one of the reasons that, um, that I'm really interested to be working on the MEF project at Microsoft because uh, it's, it's really pushing component programming into the mainstream uh, or into the, the limelight, I guess. Isn't component programming really something we've always been doing and not recognizing it for what it is? Well, we haven't really been doing it in a structured way. Um, it's a little bit like it's a little bit like functional programming um, versus the old imperative procedural style. Like I think um, right. people people have recognized that um, functional programs can be written in in procedural languages. Like a function is just a, a procedure that always returns the same result if you give it the same parameters. Um, but until really recently, there wasn't, um, I mean, unless you're using a, a functional language, you're kind of mixing up a bit of functional style and a little bit of procedural style. And I think component programming is sort of um, um, suffering the same fate at the moment. People who are using um, today's sort of implementation languages like c Sharp on .NET, say, um, are, are doing a little bit of component programming and a little bit of... Um, just regular sort of loose OO programming. Um, and so you've still got quite a few designs incorporating static variables and, um, and hidden sort of hidden dependencies where classes are calling each other's constructors directly, et cetera. And I think that where we're going with IOC containers um, and these, these um, IOC-based component frameworks like Managed Extensibility Framework is we're providing a... Um, a more structured way of doing component programming. So if you're writing a MEF application or a, um, an application using Windsor, you're, you're really guided sort of down the path of using components to to implement your whole architecture. So instead of having this sort of mix-up of components and classes, you've really got a strict sort of component-oriented view of the world. Um, so I think that's, that's really the direction. It, it's really the next step that we 
had to take to make object-oriented programming more, um, well, deliver on more of its original promises, I suppose. But hasn't folks largely retreated from a- aspects of, of object-oriented programming, like inheritance? To me, most folks that I talk to around inheritance going, you know, single-order inheritance I can live with, and after that, you're just do- talking crazy talk. Yeah. Well, I think it depends on on what you're doing. Are you making a model of entities? If you're making a model of entities, then, you know, it it does work. If you're making business objects and trying to, you know, trying to come up with some abstract way to link them together, that's, I think, where you're running into trouble. Yeah. um, I think we've just moderated ourselves a bit. Um, Inheritance is really useful for for representing like things, um, and it has the side effect of letting you reuse implementations. Um, I think we've kind of realized that representing things that, that belong to a sort of a, a family um, is a great use for inheritance. But, yeah, component software is definitely pushing us towards um, relieving inheritance of its reuse sort of burden um, and pushing for composition instead. So it's much easier to take a component that has a, um, you know, that has a, um, a service interface that it provides uh, and then wrapping another component around it that can add a bit of additional functionality and then delegate. Um, it's just a bit of a shame so far that, that delegation isn't something that's really nicely built into the languages we're using, unless you're lucky enough to be using one of the very flexible dynamic languages like Ruby at the moment. Um, so what yeah. about uh, MEF and IOC? Aren't these sort of mutually exclusive technologies? Wouldn't you just use MEF? Is there no reason to use IOC alongside it? Um. Strictly speaking, MEF implements IOC um, right. in one sort of flavor. I think it, even even among what we've typically called IOC containers, um, each framework sort of reflects the um, the problem domain that its author is working in. So um, you know you notice that um, there there is quite a lot of variation in the APIs and the the, the optimizations, um, like Autofax, is very much optimized for transactional kind of systems. Um, a lot of, I think, um, a lot of the MEF APIs having uh, come out of the Visual Studio, well, having very strongly targeted the Visual Studio extensibility case, is very, very finely tuned for the um, extensibility-related scenarios. And I think you see the same patterns cropping up in in classic IOC containers and a MEF, but uh, really the, the kind of system that you're building is today, today what's going to um, push you towards one solution or another. Um, and there is some overlap and there's some possibility of integrating. Um, I think it's it's still far, um, IOC and component or composition-based sort of programming, is still far from a solved problem and there's, there's not really a one-size-fits-all solution yet. Yeah, it does feel to me like we're feeling around for ideas on how to do this sort of uh, uh, composition model. Like, what is the right framework for this? Well, there's a we, we brought up a bunch of frameworks before. When um, you know, we I understand that that Autofac has you know uses lambda expressions and things, but what uh, do you do? You have all the other features that say like Unity has. Um, are there any differences? in terms of just the basics of it? Yeah, that's a pretty tough question. I think the, the, the funny thing is that um, in most of the, the popular or um, the, the IC containers that are getting any use out there, um, 
they're all designed around very flexible architectures. Um, Unity's got a, a really um, nicely architected sort of pipeline-based model, and Windsor has a really good um, component model sort of abstraction that lets you do a lot of things flexibly. Um, Autofac has a, a bunch of hooks for events and, um, and other little niceties like that, so there's not very much that you can do with any one of those frameworks that you can't um, emulate on one of the others, especially if you know the, the framework really well. Um, yeah, I mean, an IOC framework is really a simple thing, really, when it comes down to it. Um, it's a simple thing with very complex design trade-offs, especially around um, things like lifetime and um, how dependencies are represented. Like, oh, all of the, the models today have got very um, subtle differences that, <laughs> that I think uh, every everybody using their sort of tool of choice becomes uh, used to and assumes that it's sort of a, a typical thing. Um, it's just the way it is. Just the way it is, exactly. You've kind of implied this a couple of times, this idea that it, we really don't feel the pain of these choices until we're, you know, two or three versions down the line and trying to change things, and the app is complex enough now that, that ripping and replacing a, a given module becomes really hard. And, and a lot of this, I mean, both IOC and MEF are about creating really smooth layers for being able to pull a piece out and put a new piece in. It's an interesting observation, actually. The thing is that we kind of drive ourselves mad over these um, these design decisions and kind of corner cases in where, when we're building IOC containers or composition frameworks, I think partly so that um, those those headaches for the user who wants to um, make major changes to their application late in the process are sort of um, reduced or, or less. Yeah, the problem here is that you're not going to know until you're a long way down the path and you certainly can't change it, you know, change your mind at that point, not easily anyway. Mm. And it depends on the app. Some cases, if you're never doing a major rip and replace, it's, it's just not going to matter. Well, there, the ideal really with um, uh, with components is that they're kind of agnostic of the environment that you're that you're composing them in. So, um, and this this is kind of true for Autofac and Windsor say components um, because they're really just plain um, CLR objects. So. If you're talking about replacing an IOC container, I think you you've got a lot less of a um, a challenge. But if you if you're talking about replacing major application components, I think that's exactly what IOC containers right. enable. Yeah, I'm just trying to imagine what it would take to switch IOC containers in an app. You know, two versions in. Well, people have people have thrown around the idea of having a, a common model for IOC container configuration and um, and for. Um, creating components through an IOC container and you know, bounced around quite a bit. I think one of the um, one of the things that sort of held us from really pushing down that path is that as as much as we might um, you know, love these technologies when we start working with them or when we're um, you know when we're building them, I think the real goal is that your IOC container stays out of the way and lets you get on with the business of, of implementing your own application functionality. So I think the, the mark of sort of a successful IOC-based application is that you do some setup when, when you're initially determining your app architecture and then you really forget about it. And if you did decide to switch IOC containers later on in the piece, I think that kind of um, points to some kind of pretty fundamental problem. Um, I've seen some awesome demos actually by Iende um, or, or in any uh, recently doing at uh, alt.net Seattle doing some um, IOC driven 
uh, multi-tenancy sort of stuff. And it's amazing how much of the, the work is actually being done by the IOC container in the background there, but how little of it you actually see in the, the programming experience. And I think that's kind of um, one of the goals that we're all sort of striving towards. Eventually, the, the IOC container will become such um, an ingrained part of the environment that you're not really conscious of its presence at all. You just write components and magically they, they work. Yeah, and I was thinking about this earlier while we were talking through all these variations on IOC that at some point Microsoft's just got to say, you know, IOC is part of the system, right? I'm just kind of surprised it's not there yet. And I initially when I looked at MEF, I thought this is what Microsoft's answer to IOC is. Um, well, and Unity and more than that, I think, maybe. The extensibility framework is... It does. It uses IOC, but I mean, the, the whole idea of that is to sort of take the whole plugin model and take it to its nth degree, right? Yeah. Well, the magic sensibility framework is a is a different beast. Um, it's a ve- it's very interesting, <laughs> I guess, for for, for the, um, the IOC container nerd. But um, the the goals um, driving the design of MEF are very much. Uh, are even more loosely coupled um, architectures than than those that the IOC containers have sort of struck out to achieve, and I think that's that's led to some you know some re- a really different flavour um, in in the MEF design. Uh, it's it's pretty hard to say whether or not um, the end user developer will really s- sort of um, be aware of it. Like I think it's the the same phenomenon as I was saying about um, those those difficult trade offs not really appearing to the end user. Um, but I think MEF sort of opens up a whole realm of different possibilities um, and a, almost a different direction for component programming because it is geared towards self describing components, whereas uh, what we're really doing with IOC containers is a um, a mix of components and configuration. Um, MEF very strongly avoids any kind of centralized configuration because managing um, large products like Visual Studio, for instance, uh, is a configuration nightmare if you have some kind of centralized configuration source that everybody who wants to extend your app has to edit and um, mess around with. So so MEF's gone down the self-describing component sort of route, and that's, that's led to some really interesting possibilities on um, not least being that MEF supports uh, multiple languages. You can use dynamic languages. There have been some um, some interesting sort of um, bits of work done on supporting components that aren't really um, aren't really classically sort of .NET types, even which is uh, which has been really interesting. But I think we'll, we'll sort of see through the way people use MEF that there that there are some differences with the kind of target. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who bring you this message. One of the drawbacks of using third-party tools is that you have to deal with numerous vendors, so say goodbye to consistent quality and service level. Fortunately, that's not always the case. Our friends at Telerik, for example, are a true one-stop shop for .NET. They recently rolled out their Q1 release, which is just packed with good stuff. Start with Silverlight, an incredible grid, chart, editor, and everything else. A whole suite. A 3D chart, yes, 3D in Silverlight, is coming soon as well. 
The traditionally strong ASP.NET Ajax suite got even cooler. New controls, Visual Studio extensions for quick project kickstarts, new examples and skins, you name it. And how about web testing? Yep, Telerik is now offering a powerful solution for automated testing of modern Ajax applications. It's called Web UI Test Studio and is developed in partnership with Art of Test. Then comes reporting, WPF, WinForms, but I'm running out of time. So just go to www.telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K.com, and be amazed. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Nicholas, you're also sort of into domain-driven design, as I can see from your blog, which is really nicely laid out, by the way. I was I was just looking at your blog in... Uh, First of all, it's a great little flowchart about the uh, phone call state machine, which ends up with the phone being <laughs> yeah. hurled against the wall. But I really like uh, I really like the way the code is formatted in those in these little sort of uh, drop shadow windows. It just makes it a pleasure to read. Thanks. That's just the joy of um, of screenshots from Visual Studio. But the um, the phone held against the wall uh, tongue in cheek joke is actually from the simple state machine. Um, project they they kicked that that's example funny. off. Um, that's a pretty good one. Um, I think domain driven design and IOC um, it's sort of almost the same interest for me in that they're both um, programming technologies that are just well not programming technologies. Obviously, domain driven design goes well outside the programming domain, but they're they're approaches to development that really focus you on the the problem domain instead of technology. I mean, that might almost sound ridiculous when you look at the effort that goes into, say, implementing an IOC container, but I think using one enables you to write um, really focused code. And I think if you stick with domain language, like the ubiquitous language and um, those other sort of domain-driven techniques as well, you end up with a similar kind of output, and that's um, source code that really tells the story of, of... what the intention in the application is. So I know it's not quite domain-driven, but, I mean, that's creeping towards that idea. But have you looked at Oslo and M and all of those things for making domain-specific languages? I've had a cursory sort of um, run through Oslo and M grammar. They're very, very interesting to tools. I think uh, I can't wait to actually see how they come out yeah. in, in the world. Um, one of the architects involved with Oslo is also involved with MEF. Um, Clemens Persky, who actually has written a really good book on um, on component programming, which I think we'll include a link to. Um, and so I think that there's, there's kind of a definitely some kind of um, alignment destined there. Um, but I, I couldn't actually say right now exactly how that that's yeah. going to come out. It's a bit of a bit of an sort of where I am too. I mean, I saw the demos and I kind of got it, but without without the tools and without yeah. the, you know. Well, I mean, they have the M designer, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, it, it needs a little more flesh. Yeah, I think it, like everything that's new as well, it's very um, hard to see exactly what the wide sort of range of, of applications is going to look like, but I think we'll get some interesting things coming out of that. Do you have in mind a sort of an ideal world of software development that, that we're not quite at yet in terms of tooling or in terms of intent and... and uh, yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think um, the the underlying thing that I that I'd like to see 
uh, come out and the tools that, that we're using in the future is, is, yeah, just very intentional. I think you hit it with that word. Um, I've worked on a lot of different um, sort of styles of, of application. I think going, going back and thinking about the earliest things I've worked with in, uh, in the days that I wrote C++, they're very much um, like a cryptic encoding of the, you know, the, the intent of the, behind the business problems that you're trying to solve. And, um, and sort of looking forward to, to what we're seeing possible with the tools now, um, you know, in, in increasingly day-to-day is that the software has really started to, to, to read so much like a specification or a, um, or a, a business-oriented kind of view of the problem that I think a lot of the original vision that we had for, for these really simplified programming tools is kind of um, becoming less of an ideal as, as actually writing source code and, and working with software directly becomes more of a domain-specific kind of task. So I think, yeah, I definitely see the, I, I definitely see us still writing code in the future. Um, but that's probably a bit of a skewed view from someone who likes to write code. <laughs> I, I don't ever see code going away, but I certainly do see... Um, and you know the whole high level versus control debate is not debate, but you know the 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 we're, there we're in constant conflict with ourselves because we want tools that allow us to be productive, but we also need the control. We need to, and therefore we need to understand what the code is, and that's the whole problem with generators and and um, you know tools that try to do a lot of the grunt work for you. Yeah. And I think the the user interface problem is kind of at the forefront of of that sort of trade off as well. We've got a very I think as far as um, ways of representing information, text is still the the sort of highest bang for your buck way of recording any kind of um, process or or algorithm. Um, it's still the densest. You can put the most amount of information, the least amount of space that way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so I think yeah, until until we crack it and work out how to make um, uh, other tool sort of oriented formats that are that dense, um, I think I'm still probably leaning more to the um, to the code side of that sort of um, trade off. This may be I mean we may be off on a digression here, but I like this digression just because it's something that's been nagging at me for a while. You know, we talk about productivity languages and things, and I swear to God, I'm going to say DBase here because I remember just, you know, we wrote very yeah. little code to get dramatic results for our customers. And it was, in a way, a domain-specific language because it was very specific mm-hmm. around managing data. I'm struggling with whether now we've turned domain-specific mm-hmm. stuff into, you know, a line of business, right? When we've got an insurance domain language, that kind of thing. And I don't even know if these things really exist. I think the the thing that came from I I definitely haven't worked with eBay so I can't I can't make any kind of judgment call on on what that specifically ended up like but I think um the maintenance problem is the is the next hurdle along that we that we're really trying to solve in that domain driven or domain specific sort of programming space I think um those the earlier tools that were really task focused tended to let you get a lot done quickly, but um, had limited structuring sort of mechanisms. I think maybe one of the pushes towards encoding these domain specific languages inside regular programming languages is to give us better structuring abilities to take 
common elements out of the problem and reuse them. Um, thinking back to some of the sort of um, script-oriented tools and things that I've used, you end up doing a lot of copying and pasting. Um, and although the code that you're writing to solve your scenario is really is really terse, um, you end up right repeating that code quite a lot. Yeah, and we end up doing all kinds of work around that. It's just it's plumbing, right? Lots and lots of plumbing. All right, I maybe mean, we should drag ourselves back. Yeah. We're going down right. a little bit of a rabbit hole here in terms of uh, you know a challenging debate. <laughs> Uh, in your opinion, is IOC really a greenfield technology? I've got to start an app with this, or is it something I can reasonably retrofit into an app? Adult.net Seattle recently, we had a really interesting discussion. Um, I was really lucky to to be able to meet uh, some of the other folks who have done a lot of work in this space. Um, we had, had a little um, session based around refactoring to IOC or introducing IOC into existing apps, and I think just judging from the kind of questions and uh, feedback that we're getting from the, the audience and participant or the participants in that one. Um, I think there's definitely more of a challenge uh, bringing IOC into an existing application because while it's entirely possible and there's a really well-established tool set in IOC containers for um, for tackling those sorts of tasks with working with uh, uh, around working with legacy code, you really need to know the whole or a large chunk of your IOC tool set um, before you're going to be able to do it easily. So I think I'd recommend to anybody who is going to be jumping into IOC for the first time to choose a Greenfields project if they could. Um, it's much easier to start with a component and a dependency and, um, and kind of work your way out from there and then discover aspects of the, the tooling as you need to solve problems. Um, being faced with a large problem of the kind that sort of uh, ends up right. appearing in legacy applications, uh, you can need you can require too many kind of solution elements to really just be able to jump straight in with an IOC container there. But it's, it is definitely a feasible thing to undertake, and I'd say that one of the probably one of the most effective um, legacy sort of refactoring strategies could be to to work that way. Um, I think it's probably fairly early in, in the adoption sort of curve for these tools to, to have many good examples to point out. Well, that's something that worries me because I think, you know, this is a technology that definitely shows its value when we've got a mature app and are struggling to build new versions of it and improve things. And mm-hmm. by that token, it's very tough to justify adding this thing, this technology and understanding IOC up front when you don't know if your app's ever going to get to that point. But I know I have apps at this point now, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking, how hard is it to, 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 I'm now at the point where my complexity is killing me. I'm afraid to add new features. And, uh, and so I want to insert yeah. something that's going to help me make that less painful. And, uh, it'd be a very interesting process to take an elaborate yeah. app like that and start putting IOC technology into it and using it for your testing and eventually getting it to a point where it's like, okay, I've now got nice, clean decoupling. I can start, let's start changing these things out. Yeah, it's a very interesting challenge. Um, Christoph Twelina, um, my supervisor here, has actually been embarking on a bit of a, uh, a challenge to refactor one of his um, old applications into a component-based sort of format using MEF, and it's definitely um, drawn on a lot of resourcefulness to, to actually solve some of the problems that that's 
short about, but I think the results, at least at this stage, look like they're they're really promising. So maybe we'll maybe um, as more people tackle that, we'll we'll see some guidance and articles and things like that appearing. I, I definitely hope that out of the alt.net space in Seattle, we get some more guidance um, in a concrete form. But as yet, I haven't really seen any of that. So yeah, this this is begging for a case study. You know, build taking an application and doing. It. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's it's al- it's almost uh, something that you could apply a patterns based a- approach to. Um, the the sort of a um, a pretty fixed set of of issues that you'll encounter when you're moving from a component or from a non-component sort of based design to a component based design. It's it's strange. It's almost like turning your code inside out. Um, where I guess that's the inversion aspect of inversion of control. Um, where you would have a class that was directly um, calling another or instantiating another class, it now has to accept that as a as a parameter. So you're moving that dependency out into the calling code and and sort of pushing it in. And then I think that process becomes recursive. And so you find that uh, just to use your IOC container to instantiate one type, effectively you need to use the IOC container to construct all of the types that it that use it. Um, and there are a few sort of tactics like um, temporarily using a, a service locator in your constructors and uh, a few other things that, that came up at that open space in Seattle that um, that I think people will be able to kind of, kind of apply um, pretty regularly. I'm, I'm just pondering the idea of temporarily using a, a service locator in your constructor. Yeah, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and that, and I have a tough time with temporary anything in code. There's a terrible there's a reality here that the moment that sucker yeah. runs, it stays. If it works, leave it yep. alone. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I think maybe maybe with these sorts of um techniques that that rely on a bit of um re- relaxing of principles, you could apply them um during the process but but reserve yourself uh, from checking them in, I guess. Maybe use them as intermediate stages while you're refactoring. I've definitely done this. We're we're getting into this strangely before a bit, where because we're now at the point where the sort of core app works, and we're experimenting with new features. Where I'll give you a branch, knowing you're not going to ever bring it back. I want you to you, you know you, the results of mm-hmm. your branch are going to be a report, and then we'll destroy the branch and discuss what we'll ultimately do in the trunk in a separate project. Yep. That's that's an interesting idea. I've I've used a little um, mind trick on myself to to do that in the past. I refuse to check um, if I if I don't ever intend to merge a branch back in. I'll omit all the um, parameter checking, any kind of tests, and um, and hard code all of my constants and strings. And that way, the actual work required to bring the code up to the quality that I'd be prepared to merge. Uh, versus the work required to re-implement it is usually about equivalent. So it's sort of like, yeah, no, you, and you're exactly right. I, I'm amazed at how the developers reacted when we said, "Don't worry, you ain't coming back. Go nuts!" And they were willing to tear apart yeah. huge rafts of very complex code and take chances with it because they didn't have to test everything. They just wanted to see if this experiment would work. It was the idea of, you know, here's a technique that might get us a significant performance improvement. Let's try it. Nope, it didn't work. Chuck it out. No, it did work. Here's what worked in it. Mm -hmm. Now chuck it out, and let's talk about how we're going to implement it properly. Yeah. Yeah, it's the old, yeah, it's just discipline around uh, not, not letting the prototype get into production, isn't it? So if you can do it, I think there's some value there. 
Yeah, you know what it is? Keep management out of the room. <laughs> That's the thing. They're the guys who go, ship it. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> well, one one thing I've found since I have started using IOC in, in my applications, which is still pretty recent for me, only a, f- a few years ago I started out um, working on a project with, with Windsor, um, I found that a lot of the time that that inertia towards ripping things apart uh, is really diluted by using IOC because you find all the, all of your changes are really um, constrained by, or the impact is constrained by the services that they're providing and depending on. So you can take a component and pretty much uh, re-implement it any way you please and, and still know that the system's going to work around it because you're, you're working against those sort of contracts. Um, so I think that ha- that sort of inertia against kind of ripping a system apart and starting again is, is starting to kind of uh, be reduced for me anyway, which is a good thing. I think it's, it's similar. It's similar to the the effect that having a good suite of unit tests has um, on your confidence. Um, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Is, you know, this really the great thing about a good testing infrastructure is the confidence to rip something apart and know how you broke it. It's not that you didn't break it; yeah. it's just you know what you yeah. did. Yeah. And then at least you, you find you reveal your the problems with your fundamental assumptions and deal with the, the bigger problems up front rather than um, spending a lot of time trying to get something to work and then realizing that the, the thinking was flawed. Yeah. Definitely. And that yeah, that the big thing we're finding at Strangeship these days is we're now sort of on the bleeding edge of some of the research we're doing and, and it just needs to be that freedom to to take changes to sort of explore and carry back results to the group. Mm. Definitely, well, Nicholas. What's next for Autofac? What do you? What's in the works for the next version? Well, Autofac's really um, complete in some sense, in that it's there's there's very little that um, I think one of the original goals of the project was to create something that would com- would stay right out of your way. So, in effect, adding features to Autofac is a is um, an, an anti goal. Um, some of the other participants in the project, particularly uh, Renat Abdullah, who's, who's really driven a lot of the, the direction for the project, um, is really resistant to, to kind of taking an approach of um, of extending it through features. And I think it's probably more like more likely that the future of Autofact will be um, leaner and meaner implementations of very of very similar patterns. I'd say so. There is a there is a little bit of um, Sort of uh, open ground for Autofact to explore. Um, one of one of the things that you'll find in IOC con- uh, building IOC containers or applications on them is that um, you tend to have these sort of levels of of APIs for for dealing with the container around issues like dynamic instantiation and lifetime and all the rest of it. Um, and Autofact sort of trying very hard to the, the first level of APIs is usually around um, the, ho- the host-driven sort of um, configuration, like registering components, calling resolve on the, on the container, creating nested containers, um, and Autofax pretty much complete that way. Um, but above that, um, one of the design sort of pressures that uh, that I apply to Autofax is that all of those tasks that configure the container really should be able to be performed by components themselves rather than um, so a, a component that needs to interact with the container should be able to just take a, a dependency through its constructor um, 
way that it would take a dependency on any other component. Um, okay. And Autofac already provides some APIs around there, but there's more room for uh, improving the way that um, registrations and lifetime and other things like that can be manipulated by components. And then there's a third sort of level of APIs where um, things are very declarative and components can um, state their intentions more than manipulating the container. And I think there's some, some work there as well that might be interesting. But um, for the time being, I think um, the, code, the code base is kind of maturing and people are starting to build up a bit more of a, a knowledge of how to bend autofact they will. So I think um, from that respect, there's not, not a great lot of changes in the works. Okay. Um, well, good enough. Uh, the, the website is autofact.org, and uh, Nicholas Bloomhart has been our guest. Thanks, Nicholas. It's been great talking to you. Thank you very much. And good luck with the project going forward. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a